We know that half the people in this country who work own or work for a small business. So they are the ones that are going to be able to lead us out of this recession back into higher employment. Hello and welcome to NPR's Planet Money. I'm Alex Bloomberg. And I'm Caitlin Kenny. Today is Tuesday, February 2nd. That was Small Business Administration Chief Karen Mills you heard at the top of the podcast. On the show today, giant carnivorous birds, flying snakes, and what all of that has to do with how you season your french fries. But first, the Planet Money Indicator. <laughs> the indicator. That was very well billboarded. Thank uh, you. The indicator is 672 67.2%. That is the American home ownership rate. Right. That was in uh, last quarter, the qu- fourth quarter of 2009. Um, and that is the percentage of households listed as owner-occupied on the U.S. Census Bureau. Um, that home ownership rate has been steadily declining since it peaked in 2004 and 2005 at just above 69%. And we're now back to where that number was in 2000. Yes, we are. Okay. On to today's show. One of the things we love to talk about here at Planet Money, besides things like home ownership rates and debtor and possession financing and Hayekian versus Keynesian macroeconomic models is food. We've had podcasts about $30 pizza and fancy food conventions. So when we heard that Tom Standage, he's an editor at The Economist magazine, was coming to New York to talk at the Natural History Museum, we were pretty excited because he wrote this book called An Edible History of Humanity and has this great chapter all about spices. Hannah Jaffe Walt and I talked to him, and he told us if you look at the world as it is today— a lot of the reason it looks like it does has to do with spices. What spices do is they connect. They are the big connecting foods of history. They link up all of these different cultures. They they reveal the true geography of the world. They allow all of these exchange of ideas and you know of music, of culture, religion um, along uh, the trade routes that the that the foods, pr- principally the spices, which are traded over the longest distance. Um, so that's what they do. They're the sort of internet of the uh, um, of the ancient world. Okay, so the Internet of the Ancient World. Um, you know, that's like not exactly clear what that means. And so and Standage says to understand what that means, you just have to sort of go back, go back to, you know, 200, 300 BC and sort of consider what the ancient world looked like back then. And things were much different. People had a, a different grasp of geography than we have now. And the people who controlled the spice trade at this time were the Arab merchants. They were getting the spices from India and other points west, bringing them up the Red Sea, selling them to the Romans and Greeks and Egyptians, all in Alexandria. So as far as the Europeans saw, they only saw the spices when they came to their final destination, Alexandria. They kind of had this idea about the Indies, but they weren't exactly sure where it was. And so basically the Arabs, because they controlled the trade, they also controlled all the information about the spices. And in this case, they were sort of providing the Europeans with some disinformation. There were a particularly large number of tall tales about cinnamon. And Herodotus in the 5th century BC uh, explains, for example, that um, to get hold of cassia, which is a form of cinnamon, you had to wear a full body suit made from ox's hide uh, that covered everything except your eyes. And then you'd be protected from the fierce winged creatures like bats, <laughs> which guard the cassia, you see. And this was how the Arabs would say, well, you know, it's very expensive, I know, but it's come from very far away and you know, people have risked their lives to get hold of this stuff. And then um, cinnamon was meant to be what the large birds in Arabia made their nests from. And uh, the only way what? you could... 
Yeah, I know. It's complete rubbish. It's not from Arabia at all. Um, but anyway, this was the story. That, they um, made their nests from cinnamon. Giant, giant sticks of cinnamon, exactly, sort of branches of it. And the idea was that uh, they were these very, very aggressive birds and they built their nests on the sides of mountains. And the only way that you could get the cinnamon down was that you would get some, you'd get a cow or two and you'd chop it up and you'd leave these enormous hunks of meat on the beach. And then the birds would swoop down and pick up the chunks of meat and take them back up to their nests. But the meat would be so heavy that this would make the nest fall down onto the beach at which point you would rush out there and, and, uh, <laughs> and grab the uh, as much of it as you can but you have to kind of avoid the uh, the birds while you're doing it and then um Yes, so, and, uh, so, so you can sort of picture like an Arab middleman or an, an, an Arab trader saying, look, I know it's expensive, but yeah, listen, exactly. we have to kill a cow, it, we it, have to It goes on and on. I mean, so, so another Greek writer in the 4th century BC has heard that cinnamon grows in deep glens where it's guarded by deadly snakes and you have to wear protective gloves and shoes. And then you have to leave an offering behind to the sun um, to, uh, <laughs> to, 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 appease the, uh, the theft, to appease it for the theft. I don't know why the sun, but anyway. And then there's another story from Herodotus that, um, that frankincense came from trees that guarded by flying snakes and the only way to get rid of them was to smoke them out with a, by burning another spice which makes a smell that the uh, flying snakes don't like and then you anyway so there are all of these stories and, and um, uh, Pliny the Elder in the first century AD um, a Roman writer was saying oh you know obviously this is all made up rubbish and the Arabs are just doing this to raise their prices but it was an extremely successful strategy because no one really knew where these things came from and so they were prepared to pay very high prices for them they were very exotic some people thought that maybe you know ginger had been washed um, out of the Garden of Eden, that you know, branches in the Garden of Eden were falling into the river and being washed down the river, and uh, and were then being picked up by traders. And so there were all of these amazingly exotic and mysterious stories, and therefore people were prepared to pay very high prices for these spices. You know, it sort of reminds me of like all these stories surrounding these spices. It reminds me like if you go to a really, I, I remember a, a friend had this junket to this really fancy restaurant in Manhattan, and every single thing that they came out with was like, this is sparkling water from a pool in, you know, some Galway, Scotland that was tended by this person. And just like they tell you this there whole story. There was a story. leprechaun that yes, tended the exactly. pool and there's a rainbow that forms every day at 4 right. p.m. And it just tried, basically designed to make you forget that it just basically tastes like seltzer water. Right. Or like now when you go to the farmer's market yeah. and you're like, this cow was fed only wheat grass. It grazed for six and a half hours a day on this much land. And you're like, well, you know, that that makes me feel better about paying $12 per pound, <laughs> right, exactly. but I'm not sure that's entirely true. <laughs> right. But, of course, these spices were a lot more expensive than anything you would even say at your farmer's market or what your friend probably paid at that restaurant for that crazy mineral water. They were so valuable that Ramses II, pharaoh of Egypt, was buried with one peppercorn in each nostril. They were that prized <laughs> that he could only... I don't even. I can't even think of what's so valuable that I would want to put it up my nostril when I was buried today. I don't know. I think kids are the only people who put things up their nostrils still. <laughs> okay. So you have these Arab traders making up tall tales. Europeans don't know any better. And pepper is so valuable that you've got people stuffing their noses with peppercorns. And this all leads to this question, what happened? How did this situation change? What put us on this path to pepper being so cheap it is given away free at fast food restaurants around the world? Standish says you can trace it all back to this one moment in 120 BC when a ship was wrecked in the Red Sea. So the story goes like this. The ship wrecked, and they thought there were no survivors. No one had made it. But then they realized that one person was still alive. So they brought him to the court in Alexandria. And he says, I was on a ship that was going between India and the Red Sea. We went off course, straight out into the ocean, and he wound up in the Red Sea. And as he's telling this story, the people in the Egyptian court are just 
shocked. Their eyes are bulging out of their heads. Because they thought you couldn't get from one place to the other by going across the open ocean. They thought there was only one way to get to India, which was by hugging the shore, basically sailing all around the Arabian Peninsula up to the Persian Gulf and then back down towards India, past Iran and Pakistan. So basically always hugging the shore. Remember, this is before compasses and other navigational instruments. The only way to navigate was by landmarks. And so the thought of actually going out into the open ocean, it's actually a much more direct route between India and and Egypt if you go across the the open ocean, but they were scared to death to do that. And you can understand if you look at pictures of these big ships and they didn't exactly know where they were going or where there was land and all these people had left and never sort of come back, why it would be so terrifying. Right. But then this guy who actually survived the shipwreck, he was an Indian guy, and he said, no, it's easy. I'll show (laughs) you. And they're kind of like, I don't know. And he's like, listen, trust me, you have to go during the right time of year so you can catch the right winds. And they say, hey, we'll give it a shot. So the Indian sailor says, I will show you the secret. I will tell you how you do this, what time of year you have to do it, what direction you have to head and so on, if you'll give me a lift back to India. And a few months after the um, the ship sails away for the first time, it comes back and it's laden with jewels and spices from India, all of which the king confiscates for himself. At that point, it's, it, this is happening in, in the Alexandrian court. Um, and so clearly, you know, they start to establish regular... Um, shipments of these things but it's the romans who really sort of industrialize it this is very roman thing to do so they're soon sending you know dozens of ships a year to to get pepper from uh from the west coast of uh, uh, of india and this is why pepper becomes the most popular spice in in roman cooking um and it's also why it then ends up being taken off the list of spices um by by the fifth century because there's so much of it that it's no longer a luxury good i mean they really have sort of industrial quantities of it coming in does, does that have something to do with the way that we think about pepper today that it, it's you know a pretty general ingredient that you yeah use that's a good point things? actually because today we think of salt and pepper as you know the basics and, right. uh, and anything else is a bit more exotic um so yeah maybe that's the uh, maybe that's the reason so because this Indian sailor happened to survive this shipwreck, happened to perhaps learn Greek, happened to show the um, Europeans how to get to India directly, I have pepper on my table every night and use it on everything that I eat. Yes. So once the Europeans get let in on the secret of the open ocean route to India, basically, it leads to a huge growth in the global spice trade. Uh, And so basically from the time of Cleopatra to the fall of the Roman Empire, the spice trade flourishes throughout Europe. You have pepper and cinnamon from India, making it all the way to Britain. So things are going really well, but then it declines a bit during the Dark Ages and rebounds around the time of Elizabeth. And through it, all these spices are extremely valuable. They tell stories about medieval period kings and noblemen. They would go to visit each other and they would give spices as a gift to the people in the house just to show how wealthy they were. They would also drown their food in spices. Standage told us about this recipe he'd found for a spiced ostrich, and it was basically just covered. And it's like if you imagine opening your spice cabinet and just dumping everything out. Uh-huh. It was, it was that, that much covered in spices. And spices were even used as currency. There was a term called peppercorn rent, which meant you could pay your rent with one peppercorn. It was that valuable. God, I wish it were still that way <laughs> today, man. Um, but Sanders says an interesting thing happened around the time of Shakespeare. So throughout this whole period from the birth of Christ through the Dark Ages through the Middle Ages, spices are sort of this mysterious, exotic, very expensive good. It's never quite clear where they come from. But as the world gets smaller around the time of the explorers and stuff, maps get better. People learn more where everything else 
is on the globe and, in fact, that we live on a globe, things start to change. Once the Europeans figure out where the spices are from, um, they suddenly become much less cool. They're much less exotic. Oh, well, they're actually just brought from ships by the Dutch and they show up and, you know, they're from over here. Um, and they're no longer you know, splinters of paradise. There's no chance at all that they came from the Garden of Eden. Um, all this stuff about, you know, crazy birds uh, is just all shown to be a load of rubbish. And spices go out of fashion um, given that they've been fashionable for you know, thousands of years, they go out of fashion really pretty quickly. And there are there are cookbooks. When, when is that? Um, it's basically over the course of the 17th century. So there are cookbooks at the end of the 17th century that are that are mocking the you know oh you know in the old days people were so unsophisticated they thought spices was where it's at and they're switching to what looks a lot more like modern cuisine, um, which is sort of veneration of, you know, fine ingredients prepared simply but well, and you know, knowing exactly how to treat them. And that, uh, that seems quite modern um, to us, because if you look at the form of food that's sort of most venerated now, so you go to, you know, go to the richest state in the richest country in the world, so go to California, and what are the best restaurants they're serving? Well, basically, um, the food of the Italian peasantry. And, uh, <laughs> right. and this is, you know, this is a recurring thing in the history of food that, um, that people want to, uh, what, like playing at being poor farmers. Um, and so Marie Antoinette most famously did it. You know, she had a, an entire model farm built where she could go and play at being a milkmaid. And these beautifully cleaned cows that didn't have any mud on them at all were brought for her to milk and so on. And in fact, it's happening now in, in India. There's a, there's a farming theme park outside Bangalore where the, you know, the people who've grown up as, as computer software moguls um, can take their children and say, look, this is how we used to live. We used to have to do all this. Now, actually, it's still happening. Why they don't just go and visit grandma? I don't know. But um, but you get this, you know, you can now go and do pick your own. And this is something that, you know, if you... And if it's you quite expensive. In, yeah, it's very expensive. I went very, to a pumpkin patch in yeah. Long Island earlier this year, and it was ridiculously expensive for a pumpkin. It's it was insane. It's an amazingly insane. expensive way to do it. I mean, I remember we did it a few years ago because I asked my daughter once where food came from, and she said from the internet. Um, and this is because... <laughs> no. Not even the supermarket, the no, internet. Exactly. Well, this is because, I mean, online grocery shopping is quite well established in Britain, and um, I mean, which is great, <laughs> much, much, much more so than it is here. How old is your dad? Um, uh, so she was sort of three or four at the time. Um, and uh, so we would, you know, place our order of shopping, and the food would appear. And so as far as she could tell, and then we'd say, oh, we've run out of this, and we go to the computer and type in you know, what we need and it would show up the next week. So she thought the, co- the food was sort of coming out of the internet. So, so we said, no, no, we, okay. You know, we, so obviously. that as somebody who's a historian of spices in particular yes. must have really, really disturbed Well, it was kind of shocking. So so I thought I want to uh, I want to show you where food comes from. So and occasionally, you know, I mean, we, we're classic Londoners. We don't go outside the M25 motorway very often. So um, so we, we went down to a farm where you could do pick your own and we did corn on the cob and, you know, you can pick apples and that sort of thing. Um, and and uh, But of course, uh, fact, that was one of the things that got me thinking about my my book about the history of food. Because there I was saying to to my daughter, look, you know, this is where food comes from. It's it, you know, it doesn't come out of. It's not technological like the internet. It's something that grows and it's natural. And then I thought, actually, that's rubbish. If you know, if I was a Stone Age man and I showed up and I saw all these neat rows of corn, I'd go, what the hell's that? Just I'd be as baffled by it as I would be by the Manhattan skyline. You know, it's a completely man-made um, landscape, and the landscape of Britain would have been it was covered in oak trees um, and there weren't any fields and we look at the beautiful you know the bucolic british countryside and we go oh look at the lovely fields and the hedgerows and the lambs gambling and whatever and we think that's nature and it's not nature at all um, and that was one of the the things that got me thinking about history um, of food as a sort of history of technology and thinking about food this way helps explain why spices are 
responsible for so many developments in the world. As Standage told us, the search for spices helped spread religions and cultures. It led to the growth of naval fleets and, of course, European contact with a couple of little-known continents we like to call North and South America. <laughs> right. You can uh, see Standage's maps and find links to his other works on our blog at npr.org slash money. And remember, this is the first week of our new schedule. We'll be back with you on Friday at 4 p.m. sharp. I'm Alex Bloomberg. And I'm Caitlin Kenny. Thank you for listening. <laughs>